Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from The Day Before Yesterday by Richard Middleton. This book was published in 1912 and reflects upon those seemingly innocent but magical moments that we all had in childhood. Those moments before we worried about what other people thought and where we let our imaginations run free. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important at any time, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I need to thank a lot of listeners this week. Podbean listener Napu for your lovely review. Ben Oz on Stitcher Podcasts. And thank you to all of the shoutouts on Twitter. Slasky, Quinton and Pagina. Many thanks for all the lovely tweets during the week. An extremely special mention goes to Courtney for your message via the website during the week. It warms my heart to hear how much the podcast has helped your life, and I look forward to bringing out more episodes for you and all the other listeners. If I've missed thanking you... I apologise. Please let me know. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at BoreYouToSleep. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, please subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. You can also say hello at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Day Before Yesterday by Richard Middleton An Enchanted Place When elder brothers insisted on their rights with undue harshness, or when the grown-up people descended from Olympus with a tiresome tale of broken furniture and torn clothes, the groundlings of the schoolroom went into retreat. In summertime, this was an easy matter. One fairly escaped into the garden. Any climbable tree or shady shrub provided us with a hermitage. There was a hollow tree stump full of exciting insects and pleasant, earthy smells that never failed us. Or for wet days, 
the tool shed with its armory of weapons with which, in imagination, we would repel the attacks of hostile forces. But in the game that was our childhood, the garden was out of bounds in winter time, and we had to seek other lairs. Behind the schoolroom piano, there was a three-cornered refuge that served very well for momentary sulks or sudden alarms. It was possible to lie in ambush there, at peace with our grievances, until life took a turn for the better, and tempted us forth again into the active world. But when the hour was tragic, and we felt the need for a hiding place more remote, we took our troubles not without a recurring thrill to that enchanted place which our elders contemptuously called the mouse cupboard. This was a low cupboard that ran the whole length of the big attic under the slope of the roof and here the aggrieved spirit of childhood could find solitude and darkness in which to scheme deeds of revenge and actions of a wonderful magnanimity turn by turn. Luckily, our shelter did not appeal to the utilitarian minds of the grown-up folk or to those members of the younger generation who were beginning to trouble about their clothes. You had to enter it on your hands and knees. It was dusty, and the mice obstinately disputed our possession. On the inner walls, the plaster seemed to be oozing between the rough laths, and through little chinks and crannies in the tiles overhead, our eyes could see the sky but our imaginations soon altered these trivial blemishes. As a cave, the mouse cupboard had a very interesting story. As soon as the smugglers had left it, it passed successively through the hands of Aladdin, Robinson Crusoe, Ben Gunn and Tom Sawyer, and gave satisfaction to them all and it would no doubt have had many other tenants if someone had not discovered that it was like the cabin of a ship. From that hour, its position in our world was assured. For sooner or later, our dreams always returned to the sea, not, be it said, to the polite and civilised sea of the summer holidays but to that sea on whose foam there open magic casements, and by whose crimson tide the ships of Captain Avery and Captain Bartholomew Roberts kept faithful tryst with the Flying Dutchman. It needed no very solid vessel to carry our hearts to those enchanted waters. A paper boat floating in a saucer served well enough if the wind was propitious, so the fact that our cabin lacked portholes and was of an unusual shape did not trouble us. 
we could hear the water bubbling against the ship's side in a neighbouring cistern, and often enough the wind moaned and whistled overhead. We had our lockers, our sleeping berths, and our cabin table, and at one end of the cabin was hung a rusty old cutlass full of notches, we would have hated any one who had sought to disturb our illusion that these notches had been made in battle. When we were stowaways, even the mice were of service to us, for we gave them a full roving commission of savage rats and trembled when we heard them scampering among the cargo. But though we cut the figure of an old admiral out of a Christmas number, and chased slavers with Kingston very happily for a while, the vessel did not come into her own really, until we turned pirates and hoisted the Jolly Roger off the coast of Malabar. Then by the light of guttering candles... The mice witnessed some strange sights. If any of us had any money, we would carouse terribly, drinking ginger beer like water, and afterwards water out of the ginger beer bottles, which still retained a faint magic. Jam has been eaten without bread on board the Black Margaret, and when we fell across a merchantman laden with a valuable consignment of dried apple rings, tough fare but interesting, and the savoury sugar out of candied peel, there were boisterous times in her dim cabin. We would sing what we imagined to be sea chanties in a doleful voice, and prepare our boarding pikes for the next adventure, though we had no clear way or idea what they really were. And when we grew weary of draining rum kegs and counting the pieces of eight, our life at sea knew quieter, though no less enjoyable hours. It was pleasant to lie still after the fever of battle, and watch the flickering candles with drowsy eyes. Surely the last word has not been said on the charm of candlelight. We liked little candles. Dumpy sixteens they were perhaps, and as we lay they would spread among us their attendant shadows. Beneath us the water chuckled restlessly, and sometimes we heard the feet of the watch on deck overhead, and now and again the changing of the great bell. In such an hour, it was not difficult to picture the luminous tropic seas through which the Black Margaret was making her way. The skies of irradiant stars the desert islands like baskets of glowing flowers, and the thousand marvels of the enchanted ocean. We saw them one and all. 
It was strange to leave this place of shadows and silences and hour-long dreams to play a humble part in a noisy, gas-lit world that had not known these wonders, but there were consolations. Elder brothers might prevail in argument by methods that seemed unfair, but beneath a baffled exterior, we could conceal a sublime pity for their unadventurous lives. Governesses might criticise our dusty clothes with wearisome eloquence, but the recollection that women were not allowed on board the Black Margaret helped us to remain conventionally polite. Like the gentleman in Mr. Wells' story, we knew that there were better dreams, and the knowledge raised us for a while above the trivial passions of our environment. We were not the only children who had found the mouse cupboard a place of enchantment, for when we explored it first, we discovered a handful of wooden beads carefully hidden, hidden in a cranny in the wall. These breathed of the nursery rather than of the schoolroom, and yet perhaps those forgotten children had known what we knew, and our songs of the sea stirred only familiar echoes. It is likely enough that today other children have inherited our dreams, and that our hands steer the black Margaret, under approving stars. If this indeed is so, they are in our debt, for in one of our hiding places we left the Count of Monte Cristo in English, rare treasure trove for any proper boy. If this should ever meet his eyes, he will understand. A Railway Journey I suppose that when little boys made their journeys by coach with David Copperfield or Tom Brown and his pea-shooting comrades, they did it in truth and they found adventure easier to achieve than those who are born in an age of railways. But though the rarer joys of far travel by road were denied to us, and did not need Mr. Rudyard Kipling in a didactic mood to convince us, convince us that there were plenty of romance in railway journeys, if you approach them in the right spirit. We were as fond of playing at trains as most small boys, and a stationary engine with the light of the furnace glowing on the grim face of the driver, was a disquieting feature of all my nightmares. So when the grown-up people announced that one of us was to make a long journey young Ulysses became, for the moment an envied and enchanted figure, our periodical excursions to London were well enough in their way, Noisy, jolly parties in reserved carriages to pantomimes and the Lord Mayor's show. All matter of fact, 
visits to the dentist or the shops. But we all knew the features of the landscape on the way to London by heart, and it was the thought of voyaging through the unknown that fired our lively blood, our hazy sense of geography enabling us to believe that all manner of marvels were to be seen by young eyes from English railway carriages. Also, we did not feel that we were real travellers until we had left all our grown-up friends behind, though in such circumstances we had to put up with the indignity of being confided to the care of a guard. Until children have votes, they will continue to suffer from such slights as this. One morning in early spring, I left London for the north. The adult who saw me off performed his task on the whole very well. True, he introduced me to the guard, a bearded and sinister man, but on the other hand, he realised the importance of my having a corner seat, and only once or twice committed the error of treating me as if I were a parcel. For my part, I was at pains to conceal my excitement beneath the mannerisms of an experienced traveller. I put the window up and down several times, and read aloud all the notices concerning the luncheon baskets and danger signals. Then my companion shook hands with me, in a sensible manly fashion, and the train started. I sat back and examined my fellow travellers, and found them rather disappointing. There were three ladies, manifestly of the aunt kind, and a stiff, well-behaved little girl, who might have stepped out of one of your sister's story books. She was reading a book without pictures, and when I turned over the page of the magazine, she displayed no interest in them whatsoever. I could never read in the train, so with a tentative effort at good manners, I pushed them towards her, but she shook her head to show her that I did not think this was a snub. I pulled out my packet of sandwiches and had my lunch. After that I played with the blind, which worked with a spring, until one of the aunts told me not to fidget, although she was no aunt of mine. Then I looked out of the window, a prey to voiceless wrath. By now we had left London far behind, and when I had finished composing imaginary retorts to the unscrupulous aunt, I was quite content to see the wonders of the world flit by. There were hills and valleys decked with romantic woods and set with fascinating and secret ponds. To my eyes the hills were mountains, 
and the valley's perilous hollows, the accustomed lairs of tremendous dragons, I saw little thatched houses wherein swart witches awaited the coming of Hansel and Gretel. The fairy children waved to me from the cottage gardens and the gates of level crossings, greetings which I dutifully returned until the aunt made me pull up the window. After a while, change came over the scenery. The placid greens and browns of the countryside blossomed to gold and purple and crimson. I saw a rock float across the arching sky on sluggish winds, and my eyes were delighted with visions of deserts and mosques and palm trees. That my fellow passengers would not raise their heads to behold these marvels did not trouble me. I beat on the window with delight until the little Billy in Thackeray's ballad, I saw Jerusalem and Madagascar and North and South America. Then something surprising happened. I saw the earth leap up and invade the sky, and the sky drop down and blot out the earth, and I felt as though my wings were broken. Then the sides of the carriage closed in and squeezed out the door like a pip, out of an orange until there was only three-cornered gap left. The air was full of dust, and I sneezed again and again, but could not find my pocket handkerchief. Presently a young man came and lifted me out through the hole, and seemed very surprised that I was not hurt. I realized that there had been an accident, for the train was broken into pieces and the permanent way was very untidy. Close at hand I saw the little girl sitting on a bank and a man kneeling at her feet taking her boots off. I would have liked to speak to her, but I remembered how she had refused the offer of my magazines and was afraid she would snub me again. The place was very noisy, for people were calling out and there was a great sound of steam. I noticed that everybody's face was very white, especially the guards, which made his beard seem as black as soot. The young man took me by the hand and led me along the uneven ground, and there was so much to see that my feet kept stumbling over things. The Magic Pool Being born in a sceptical age, heirs of a world that certainly took its Darwin too seriously, we children did not readily enlarge the circle of our supernatural acquaintances. There was the old witch who lived in the two-storied house beyond the hill, 
in whom less discriminate eyes recognised only the very respectable widow of an officer in the India army. There was the ghost of the murdered shepherd lad that haunted the ruined hut, high up on the windy downs. On gusty nights we heard him piping shrilly to his phantom flocks, and sometimes their little bells seemed to greet us from the chorus of the storm. There was a little kitten who meowed to us from the shadows of the rainwater cistern, and a small boy who cried about the garden in the autumn because he could not find his ball among the leaves. We had all heard the three last, and most of us had seen them at twilight time, when ghosts pluck up their poor thin courage and take their walks abroad. As for the witch, we relied on our intuitions and gave her house a wide berth. The credentials of these four unique spirits, having been examined and found satisfactory, schoolroom opinion was against any addition to their number. We would not accept my younger brother's murderer carrying a sack or my little sister's procession of special tortoises, though we acknowledged that there was merit in them regarded merely as artistic conceptions. Perhaps subconsciously, we realised that to make the supernatural commonplace is also to make it ineffective, and that there is no dignity in a life jostled by spooks. At all events, we relied for our periodical panics on those which had received the official sanction and on the terrifying monsters of our imaginations had drawn from real life, burglars, lunatics, and drunken men. It was therefore noteworthy that as soon as we discovered the pool in Hayward's Wood, we were all agreed that it was no ordinary sheet of water, but one of those enchanted pools which draw their waters from magic sources and are capable of throwing spells over mortals who approach them unwarily. And yet, though we felt instinctively that there was something queer about it, the pool itself was not unattractive. Held as it were, in a cup in the heart of the wood, it still contrived to win its share of sunshine through the branches above. On its surface, the water boatmen were ferrying cheerfully to and fro, while overhead the dragonflies drove their gaudy monoplanes in ceaseless competition. All about the woods were happy with wild garlic, and the little purple gloves that nature provides for foxes. And through the natural alley, we could see a golden meadow, where cups of cool butter were spread with lavish generosity to quench the parched tongues of bees. 
the mud that squelched under our feet as we stood on the brink seemed to be good, honest mud and gave our boots the proper holiday finish. Nevertheless, we stared silently at the waters, half expecting to see them thicken and part in brown foam to allow some red-mouthed prehistoric monster to ride oozily from his resting place in the mud, some such mammoth as we had seen carved in stone on the borders of the lake at the Crystal Palace. But no monster appeared. Only a rabbit sprang up suddenly on the far side. After a while, we grew weary of our doubts, and tacitly agreeing to pretend that it was only an ordinary pond, fell to paddling in the shallows with a good heart. The mud slid warmly through our toes, and the water lay round our calves like a tight string, but we were not changed as we had half anticipated into tadpoles or water lilies. It was apparent that the magic was of a subtler kind than this, and we splashed about cheerfully until the inevitable happened, and one of us went in up to our waist. Then we sat on the bank, nursing our wet feet, and laughing at the victim as he ruefully wrung out his clothes. We were all of a nautical turn of mind, and we agreed that the pond would serve very well for minor naval engagements, though it was too sheltered to provide enough wind for sailing ships. Still here we should at all events be secure from such a disaster, as had recently overtaken my troop ship Dauntless, which was cruising in calm weather on Pickhurst Pond, when all of a sudden a land breeze shook the shrouds as she was overset, and four and twenty good soldiers sank to the bottom like lead, which they were, regarded merely as an attractive piece of water. The pool could not fail to be of service in our adventurous lives, but all the time we felt in our hearts that it was something more, though we would have found it hard to give reasons for our conviction, for the pool seemed very well able to keep the secret of its enchantment, and we did not even know whether it was the instrument of black magic or of white, whether its influence on human beings was amiable or malevolent. We only knew that it was under a spell, that beneath its reticent surface, that showed nothing more than the reflection of our own inquiring faces, lay hidden some part of that especial magic that makes the dreams of young people as real as life and contradicts the unlovely generalizations of disillusioned adults. 
All that was necessary was to find the key that would unlock the golden gates. The brother who was nearest to me in terms of years found it two days later and came to me breathlessly with the news. He had been reading a book of fairy stories and had come upon the description of just a magic pool similar to ours, even to the rabbit who was, it seemed, a kind of advance agent to the spirit of the pool. The rules were very clear. All you had to do was go to the pool at midnight and wish aloud, and your wish would be granted. If you were greedy enough to wish more than once, you would have changed into a goldfish. My brother thought it would be rather jolly to be a goldfish, and so for a while did I. But on reflection we decided that if the one wish were carefully expended, it might be more amusing to remain a boy. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. In the meantime, I'll be working on a new episode to bring to you. Until next time, good night.